2: To the Catholic Church is straining to breaking point. The secret crimes of Irish priests against children have collapsed the Church's moral authority. I should be out playing with other 10 year olds, but I wasn't. I was being taken out to each street. Once the bastion of Catholicism on the edge of Europe, Successive state inquiries on clerical abuse have revealed ugly secrets and left the church reeling. I don't know of any other situation that I'm aware of where the, the clerical establishment has disintegrated as quickly and as dramatically and as uh, comprehensively as it has in Ireland. The clerical abuse scandal is far from ended and it goes to the very top of the Catholic Church in Ireland. I am 100% certain that I absolutely know that in my
3: mind. I give them the names and addresses of those children. And you know
2: that children were abused because you failed to impart, because you failed to protect them. No, I thank to do. The Irish Catholic Church once had
3: unquestioned authority, not anymore. It came in about two or three years, where the entire business of the church's power over our lives in the Republic of Ireland simply went down and stayed down and, 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 it, and it looks as though it cannot rise.
2: The official end of Holy Roman Catholic Ireland came last summer with an extraordinary speech by the Irish Prime Minister. The rape and the torture of children were downed are managed to uphold instead the primacy of the institution, its power, its standing, and its reputation. That landmark speaks from a leader rooted in rural Catholic Ireland, to on the anger and frustration of the Irish public. I am in Donegal, in the very northwest of Ireland, It has the highest rate of allegations of clerical abuse in the country. The church is set to publish its own report about abuse here in the local Refoe Diocese that hopes it will help to restore its reputation. Convicted rapist Father Eugene Green attacked children here and in other parts of the county for decades, often in the most remote and beautiful places. It's known the rapist was reported to his superiors many years ago, but until now, bishops have insisted there is no evidence of this. No one knows more about Father Eugene Green and how the church handled him and retired detective Martin Ridge. He spent two years investigating the crimes of Ireland's most prolific child rapist. We're crossing to Winnie Spotham Island, a mile off the Donegal coast. No place was safe for children here. It's the most beautiful, idyllic place you could imagine to live, where innocence collided with evil. It seemed that the wolves were protected and the innocence of the children, the little lambs were. I don't believe a week would buy in West Donegal where you had a child or number of children sexually abused. It's oranges. Anywhere you look around here, it is so hard to fathom. By roads, side roads, The churches, schools. The abuse here was something unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the fact that nobody in the public spoke out about this, you know, after the total carnage here. just behind this very altar which was set up in the event of a priest being stuck on the island due to that you know and unfortunately Father Eugene Green led some very young boys up here and abused them raped them horrifically just behind this altar here behind the wall basically I diving in the same body some of
4: the abuse
2: happened. The police investigation, which ended with Bobby Eugene Green being jailed in two thousand, found evidence the priest's crimes were covered up, something always denied by the church, which says there's no documentary proof. from the reform report a couple of days time. Any revelations? Well, it's hard to see. I mean the view itself will show what was on file, what was written down. Would it be enough to convince us that all the truth is written down? I don't know. I don't like to be a cynic like St. Thomas but uh, uh, I only know too well how hard it is to get to the truth in the
5: Catholic Church. <laughs> I know
2: that much remains hidden here because I used to call this place home. Fourteen years ago, I gave up my job as a BBC reporter and moved with family to a new life running a pub restaurant. Now, dear, back to the old haunt again. Well, do you think there's any change since no. you left Well, Most of Father Eugene Green's 26 known victims come from Goethe Herk, where I lived. Until the police inquiry began, they suffered in silence. One of them worked with me, Martin Gallagher. This shows exactly where Green served him. Martin shows me the various parishes for using Green worked and abused him. He believes the priest was moved every time rumours of abuse surfaced. He served there, and Gidor here, and went to where they this and I all the way down the way down. So they served in Tory Island, under Hark, Tory Island, and in Isbuffin. And then he finished up in Macri, As far as the last post was. They're moving as priest. It's like spreading the disease from one corner to another. The bishop spread the disease. He had the disease. They spread it. It's as simple as A-D-C. With the Gold Church Report imminent, Martin has just now started to speak publicly about his abuse. It began when the 12-year-old was encouraged to drive the priest's car. He started grooping me when I was driving and messing about. My hands were on the wheel. And at that age, I sure. was probably out driving and I'm excited and all that. And you kept your hands on the knee regardless. And he would carry on this messing. He would stop and change. He would drive and expect the same treatment back from me that I was he was giving me like I couldn't do that. Like he was forcing me to do it. Scary. Like really scary. I at twelve years old. He were very innocent, very, how would you say, stupid or whatever, but he didn't know any about anything. Yeah, it just stuff. Did he ever say anything to you about this is our secret? Yeah, he did stop there. Um, You know, people looking at this just don't understand the devastation, the hurt, the harm that that man did. I don't know what people will ever understand.
6: The hurt he's caused. The lives he's ruined.
4: The lives that have been lost because of
2: Because it'd be like... People had to take an action. When he was with you, did he ever mention God? Or did he ever... No, no.
6: God was the last thing in his mind. He didn't care about God.
2: marketeer editor of the local Turconnell Tribune. Donegal, born and bred. The church he knew was too powerful beyond reproach. So what about the, the culture of silence that was here? Mm. Does that culture of silence still exist? The culture of silence I think is, is, uh, is a misnomer to a great extent because of the power and the strength of the hierarchy over the centuries and over the years here and uh, very rural conservative diocese like Rippo there was a culture of fear fear that if you reported that you were being abused you were probably further abused by your parents for making the allegation it was a very very serious situation and I think that that is ingrained into the psyche of the people here in this diocese and maybe to an extent that uh, that whole history is there to this very day you don't think it's gone I don't think it's gone though. No because there's a denial there, and there remains a denial to this very day that to criticize the church is entirely wrong. That deference is fading, but it is almost impossible to overstate the power the Catholic church once had. For generations, the Church influenced most aspects of Irish life. Dublin and the Eucharistic Congress of 1932, the Catholic Church was presiding like a new monarchy over the fledgling Irish state, exalted and respected and feared too. Author Colin Tobin grew up Catholic in a country town. He's long scrutinized the relationship between
3: the Irish and the institutional church. Southern Ireland was effectively, after 1922, a Catholic state for a Catholic people. The church was an effective government or shadow government, making it absolutely clear to government that they would control schools and hospitals and many other areas of public morality anyone who didn't like this there was only one place to go and that was out and people some people went out looking for work other people went out looking for freedom but but that was a great release giving the church further power over those who remained and there was a nobility and grandeur about them I mean the bishop lived in a palace but even in the towns the priest's house was often or in villages the biggest house and the curate had a separate house and they had housekeepers so there was a sense of their grandeur they almost replaced landlords or were a shadow system in the way in which they functioned and the um, sense of their distance and grandeur and importance
2: Maynooth College was once the world's largest seminary thousands of priests left here to work across the globe, my own uncle, Father Noel, among them. That production line is almost closed. Fewer than a dozen priests are expected to be ordained this year. The class photo of 2007 shows just four graduating priests. Contrast that with the class of 1954. 1954. This is my uncle, father, Noel McIntyre, As you see up here, Nellig McIntyre in the Irish, a decent man, very important to me growing up, good man, the sort of traditional Irish Catholic parish priest that every community deserved, didn't always get, he's a good man, you have a sentence You're just an entirely different Ireland looking at this all these men you know 60, 70 men proudly marching to work for God but that was a different Ireland and of course a different church, that's the point Across Ireland, bishops have been forced to account for decades of clerical abuse. Can the church now do the same with the RIFO report? That's the question people are asking in Donegal. People like my old neighbours, the Breslans.
7: Right. Yes. That? Right? Yeah.
2: Martin's Aunt Kathleen and her son Paul, who was also abused by Father Eugene Green. That's me. Yeah. That's Martin. That's the good looking yeah, one. one's Martin. I was not going to pass me that's just a It's just a lovely picture of the two boys. First time you yeah. yeah. came in with uh, the Williams How tough was it for you at the start when it all happened, when it all came out? Oh, and I'm sure it.
7: Tough. Really i remember the first night, Martin. Okay. At the minute you told me, I, I knew. I told him that the manatee said it. I said I know when he mentioned that was green. I knew, I knew right away. because I knew he took the two of them. So I knew what, what happened. Of course, it was Kenneth backing to go out that time you know, and I heard. No. So, back and told that night. That was the beginning.
3: It's always depended on women. The woman. Represented the church in the house. She decided, you know, fuck mass nah, you went to. She decided who went to, come Have you to confession. Did your mother ask you that question?
7: There was no saying no. they had to go. And that was it. It's changed, really. There isn't as many things. No. But people remark they didn't go. No. Yeah, oh, well, in them
3: days, true. you had to go. So not one bishop, not one senior clergyman had stepped out of line and had been brave enough to say, I know more than than, everyone is saying, and it's wrong. Not one did it. And for women who had brought up children, who had done everything possible in their own households, that was an extraordinary breach of something they fundamentally
7: believed in. It was hard to believe it. Because when you think that the came in here, you know, that he was in this house, so often, you know, seeing masks. It was hard to believe it.
2: Paul Breslin was an altar boy when Father Eugene Green first took him away in his car. Always to quiet, isolated places. I guess there's so much beauty here, but for me there's so much evil and so much hearts. I should be out playing with other 10-year-olds. But I wasn't, I was being taken down to the beach and raped. Age of 10, 11, 12. I had no life at all. I had no childhood. No fun. Nothing. It was just pain, pain, pain. Every single week, pain. I would say to myself, why, why is God doing this to me? Like, I thought, I thought God was supposed to care, and the priest was supposed to care, and not not hurt the person, you know? Like, and I thought, maybe I'm doing something wrong here. You know, am I might be, am I might not be doing a good enough job as not a boy, That he's punishing me for this. When I gradually went, you know, I as I was growing up when I was 14, 15, you know, up to 16, you you learn and eventually, you know, everything about, you know, your body and everything. And then I think, oh my God, I said, these things happened to me.
3: This is what he fucking done to me. And the pain got even worse then. That was, I was, I was in there... And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't tell anybody,
2: I couldn't quote anybody. They wouldn't believe me anyway, Start off one. It's now clear that survivors have not been spoken to for the upcoming report, which is relying on the church's own documents. I worry this will disappoint those who I have met. Like, we weren't involved with in this report. You know, we have to speak up, be heard. I want this, I want that. I want to see those fails. I want to see that letter of complaint, I want to... I want to know why was he moved from this parish? You knew that he was doing it in that parish, but you moved him to the other parish. Why was he then moved from that parish to the other parish? We want want answers.
6: Of course we want answers. We want answers, big answers. Definitely.
2: Father Eugene Green's crimes might have remained hidden, except for one man who'd been brutally abused, Conor Melly telling his story for the very first time in public. he will never forget it. It's worth you for the rest of your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. He has no faith that the church will admit to a cover-up. After a chance meeting in 1997, he tried to get Green to admit to his crimes. That was, well, probably... maybe a month after. And then confronting him. What did you say to him? I told him that he, I asked him did he remember me. And he said, no. And uh, I said, you remember abusing me when I was young. He says, you never abused anyone. Never. So what did you say to him? What did you do to him? I caught him and flung across the, flung across the room. He's like, it was different then. I was a lot bigger than him. What age have you been when he had abused you? At 11. You were a tiny child. Yeah. It was different now.
1: Yeah, it was different then. So you picked him up, and you?
2: you? picked him up and flung him across the room. I can't remember exactly what I said to him, but I said I would fucking kill him. I think that's why he... that frightened him. But he still didn't admit to know, no, he did not. He never admitted no. Connell then told the priest he wanted compensation, 5,000 pounds. But what did he do? Well, he was peer-reported to the garage. He reported deep the guards. Why? As if... I don't know, like, if he was innocent. Or he must have thought the guards would believe him. Connell was arrested for attempted blackmail, but the Eugene Queen had miscalculated. The police were now prepared to believe the former altar boy and not the man, but the Roman collar. Dozens of victims came forward, while the Eugene Green was convicted and sentenced to 12 years in prison. But what the church knew was never explained.
3: The big change then came from a number of individuals, because when the victims began to speak, when you saw somebody describing their adulthood it was like in the shadow of what had happened to them. There was an element of shame in this, you know, that they'd been living with this. This had been going on in front of everyone who knows it.
2: The big question across Ireland this morning, will the report into Donegal's Refoe Diocese help restore the church's reputation? What they're predicting in today's papers, the Irish Times... Criticism likely for some bishops on child sex claims, right? If that is the sum of it, if it's just simply a mild criticism, that's not going to satisfy them. Absolutely not. I mean, they are, I mean, at one point they would have been anxious for heads to roll. They're, they know that's not going to happen now. Uh, but they absolutely want the church to own up, to fess up, to confess their role in, in hiding and covering up the crimes. For more than three decades, the following is in Email 10 a.m., the local bishop, Philip Boyce, goes live on morning radio. Well, it's an important uh, day for the diocese of Refoe because the much-anticipated report uh, has just... Retired detective Martin Ridge waiting to hear if any new information is revealed. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing was done at the time. Now, we are we're talking about the late 70s, and there wasn't
5: such awareness of child abuse at that time, and there certainly wasn't awareness of the damage. Mm-hmm. There was awareness of the Children, sometimes, lifelong damage, uh, parishes as far as humanity
2: is possible, uh, and place for our children, because after all, our children are... That. Uh, yeah. uh, are that's a good the situation. Self-serving world more the society, and the church of tomorrow. Okay. Later, there's a massive media turnout for a press conference with Bishop Boyce.
5: I have spent endless hours and given much time and energy to eradicating this evil, repairing what is damaged as best I could, restoring justice and putting structures in place to prevent, as far as possible, this criminal sin from happening again. Finally, I would like to take this opportunity to say that the task of ensuring the safeguarding of young people in the diocese is an ongoing one. Thank you. Um,
2: Mr. Boyce, can I ask you? Um, Pointedly, there is no specific criticism of bishops or of the church in the way they handled Father Eugene Green, one of the country's most prolific pedophiles. There is no specific criticism of the way the church or successive bishops handled him, including yourself. Does this report then, in your terms, exonerate bishops and the church in the way they handled?
5: I'm not saying saying it exonerates everybody. It, It just shows that at the time, these uh, the information on these terrible things that happened weren't handed up as far as, let's say, as the bishop's office. And the word of that didn't come to us because there was no reference whatsoever to any allegation in the files which I saw when they came in.
2: The church never intended the report to thoroughly investigate the past It was restricted to an examination of diocesan files and because nothing was found in the files that is where it ended. It's clear that significant errors of judgment were made by successive bishops when responding to abuse allegations that emerged within this diocese but there's no reference to Father Eugene Green himself. I know if I was one of those who'd been attacked by Father Eugene Green or if my brother or my child had been attacked by Father Eugene Green and this is the sum of knowledge that the church is admitting to now I'd be absolutely outraged, I'd be furious After Sir Connell Tribune newspaper, the presses are underway by late afternoon. The editor has made up his mind. My biggest criticism over the past from that is that here you have a nodded and clerical sex abuse that has no terms of reference to talk to the abused. You just ask the question, how can a report of any kind be completed without talking to the victims. Remember that a lot of these survivors have spent 35 to 40 years literally imprisoned in their own minds, imprisoned in their own communities, and to a great extent have been hospitalized in psychiatric wards, have had nervous breakdowns, have had uh, serious bouts of alcoholism, have had thoughts of suicide. Uh, the scenario is absolutely horrendous. And yet you contrast that against how the church has handled it and how the institutions of the church have totally failed those people. And today's audit, to me, does nothing to address their concerns and their health problems. What do your front page say tonight? We'll be simply saying that who uh, audit is a whitewash. A whitewash.
3: It's very difficult if you put such an important organization on the run as it were, that they simply will have no idea how to behave, how often to look back as they run, you know, how frightened to look, how how apologetic to look, how to avoid the worst catastrophe. So it's not as though you could say, oh, there was one way the church should have functioned at the very beginning. The issue is that the church had such power, and that power became abuse, and that abuse was sexual abuse, and that happened to so many vulnerable young people whose lives were destroyed and that has to be dealt with. The failure of the Catholic hierarchy
2: to deal with abusing priests was not just confined to Donegal. One story, still unresolved, goes all the way to the very top of the Irish Catholic Church and could have explosive consequences. It involves Cardinal Sean Brady, Primate of all Ireland, the last few days have been among the most uh, extraordinary. And the country's most notorious pedophile priest, Father Brendan Smith. At its center, a boy who in 1975 reported Smith's abuse to the Cardinal, hoping to end the abuse of him and other children. What Brendan Boland didn't know was that the institution in which he and his family held so much faith. Would in fact conspire to silence him. What age yeah. were you when this all started? Well, when I was the old, an old boy, I was 11 years old. We were just 11, 5, 11 years. And how long did it carry on for? Carried on for over two years. Smith, who abused for four decades, often took children on marathon excursions in his car up and down the island. Brendan remembers one particular trip to Dublin. We got in the car and we went to Belfast and picked up uh, two children in Belfast and then we, we drove from Belfast to Cabin. We picked the girl up in Cabin. Went to pick another boy up in Cabin and then we went back to the Bed and breakfast. And there was two bedrooms. There was one for the girls and one for Father Smith and the two boys. That was you and another boy. Me and another boy. Boy from Belfast. And um, he called me over first and he abused me the way he did before. And when he was finished with me, I went back to bed and then he called the other boy over. I've done the same with him, and this time I was was in the bed watching. Well, I was listening. I, I didn't want to watch. It was a little afterwards in 1975 that Brendan found the courage to tell a local priest about the abuse. The priest took him straight home to tell his parents. A week or so later, Brendan and his dad were driven to a local monastery. Brendan was led into a room with three priests including Father John B. Brady, now Cardinal Brady, then a 36-year-old teacher, canon lawyer, and bishop's secretary. Brendan was to be questioned, alone. His father was told to stay outside. I felt alone, scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what questions were was going to ask him. I was only 14 years old, I think. And your father wasn't in there with him. My father wasn't in there with me. Cardinal Brady compiled the answers. Another priest asked the questions. Brendan was asked what Smith did, but also about his own behaviour. What did they ask you? Did you ever do anything of this before with another boy or, or man, grown man? And I said, no. And they said, if not, why not? And they um, asked me, did my body change? Did I get an erection? Um, they asked me, then, did uh, seed come from my body? And what kind of questions I he to ask a 14 year old boy? Brendan might have been shaken by the nature of the questions, but as the church's own transcript confirms, he was able to tell the priests the names and addresses of other children who Smith was abusing or who were at risk of abuse. Like gave them the names of the other children that were with me on the trips. There was a boy from Belfast, I gave him his name and address. There was a girl from Belfast, I gave him her name and address. And there was a girl from Cabin, I gave him her name and address. There was a, another boy from Cabin, I gave him his name and address. And there was another boy that was his friend. So were you able to be any more specific about, about a beast you had seen you had witnessed? Yeah, I, I told him that um, I witnessed one boy being abused. I told him that was That That was the boy from Belfast. You told him that this boy had been abused? I did, yes. Yep. I knew for a fact he was abused. And the other boy from Cabin, he told me he was abused because he didn't like going on the trucks either. The documents verified Brendan's account in black and white. One of the priests came over, I'm not sure, with a Bible. And he made me put my hand on the Bible and say, I, Brendan Boland, Solomon's well, I have told the truth, the whole truth and I will speak to no one about this meeting only to authorised priests. And then I signed it, and the other signature on the document was Father John B. Brady, now John Brady, Cardinal of Ireland. Cardinal Brady still had work to do, he himself conducted a second interview, this time with the cabin boy Brendan had told him about. The child corroborated Brendan's account. He was sworn to secrecy. Again, Cardinal Brady countersigned the oath. He passed two reports to his bishop. The police were told nothing, ever. And I've just spoken to the man who, as a 15 a year old boy, was also interviewed by Cardinal Sean Brady. And what he's told me is shocking. He says that his parents were told nothing about his involvement in this secret church investigation. More than that, he says his parents were not told that he was being abused by Father Brendan Smith. The church, of course, said nothing. And he said nothing to anyone, not a soul, because he was sworn to secrecy. I then traced Brendan's friend from Belfast using the same address that the 14-year-old gave all those years ago.
6: I remember going up to Dublin with Brendan. I think it was about five or six of us on that trip. Um, um,
4: Brendan
6: Brendan was a nice fellow. He was probably as petrified as I was at the time. But, and the the things, you know, I, I just felt and in many ways, I felt very guilty too, you know, because I was sharing a room with this other boy and Smith his behavior and his behaviour and what he really wanted us to do and want the way he wanted us to behave. I just it's, it's uh, unbearable to think about it sometimes, you know.
2: When I tell him that Cardinal Brady was told in 1975 that he was being abused... But his name is down on paper. He is horrified.
6: And then as it transpired that uh, Brendan had mentioned me and that my name and address is actually on these documents as well. It was just like it's like a knife knife into your chest. it's, it's like a sudden,
2: sharp pain. And the reason it hurts so much is that Father Brendan Smith continued to abuse him after 1975, then his sister, for another seven years, and four cousins abused right up until
6: 1988. Nobody came to our house, or should have came to our house, and warned our family, and my parents, and, and, and said, look, this is what's happening, this man is involved in this, we would strictly advise you to keep him away from the house. Okay, now they had only another year's abuse to go. But my sister, she, you know, for years after that, she was abused. And then, lo and behold, cousins after that. I have spoken to all
2: those who Brendan Boland told the church about in 1975. Four of the five children had been abused by Smith. Two of them continue to be abused after that secret inquiry. All say that to the best of their knowledge, their families were not warned in any way
6: about the beta file. Brandon Purin actually thought given this information, he was gonna protect me, he was gonna protect other people, and thinking this was gonna be the end of it. And by God it is far from the end.
2: Cardinal Brady's own career took off after 1975, first away to Rome, and then in 1997 made climate of All-Ireland a senior talent in the country. By his own account, he never failed to protect any child. If I found myself in the situation where I was aware that my failure to act
5: had allowed or meant that other children were abused. Well, then I think I would resign.
2: I'm writing what's called a right of reply letter to Cardinal Brady, telling him what we have discovered point by point. I want to know why he didn't make sure the children he'd been told about were protected. And I do want to know why he and the church had seemed to minimize his role when it is plain that he carried out the investigation into Smith. When limited news of the church investigation first broke two years ago, the church called him a note-taker. He said he was a notary without powers who did his job. I insist again, I did act and acted effectively in that
5: inquiry to produce the, the, the grounds for removing Father Smith from ministry and specifically from, it was underlined that he would not, he was not to hear confessions
2: and that was very important. The ban on Smith wasn't enforced. Here he is four years later at a special mass for the sick. And when Cardinal Brady says he was a notary, his role was in fact that of an investigator, according to his own handwritten note. I was dispatched to investigate the complaint. I needed to find a clear path through the archaic and often confusing world of canon law. The Church law that Cardinal Brady was versed in, about that he applied to this 1975 case. My guide is the Reverend Thomas Doyle, a world-renowned expert in the field. He was the investigator. He was deputed to investigate, to lead the investigation, to make sure that it had taken place. Not well, simply a note taker. No, not simply. That's simply a. That's that's minimizing what he actually was. He he, he did take notes, but he also prepared the report. And uh, he, auth- he authenticated the report. You know that Target Brady insists that he did his job, that he passed the information he had up to his bishop. Did he do his job? Just to say that I did my duty, I just followed orders, I passed it up the chain, is completely inadequate. I mean, if he didn't do it, he should have told the, the bishop the other families need to be notified, if you won't do it, I will do it. You know, the man was not a robot. And these are human beings that he's dealing with here. And so, you know, the the information was very clear. The testimony that that, uh, Brendan apparently gave to them was was very, very clear and detailed, as well as the names of the others. These are the ones we know about. Now, there could well have been a number of others. That could have been prevented, but it was not prevented. That in itself is criminal behavior. Because the bishops, the priests, Brady, they knew that this man was an abuser of children. It wasn't that he was, as I said, slapping the wrist with a ruler in class. He was sexually assaulted. Nothing happened. Again, a cover-up. Ultimately, all power in the Catholic Church resides in Rome, with the Pope, who appoints all the bishops, all the cardinals, This is one hierarchy which doesn't pretend to be anything else. Estimates vary, but so far the abuse scandals have cost the church about three billion pounds and counted. Much more vital damage has been done to its reputation and to its moral authority. This day, senior church figures from around the globe are gathering for a conference in Rome, looking at ways of rooting out child abuse. Cardinal Sean Brady heads a small Irish delegation. I've been told that even within the church, Cardinal Brady is seen as a gravely weakened leader. I don't expect to speak to him until he has had time to respond to my letter. But I do want to speak to this man on St. Charles Shacluna. He is one of the most powerful officials in the Catholic Church, the chief prosecutor. Having examined 4,000 cases of clerical abuse, he says accountability and truth are the only way forward.
8: We need to move on from a culture of silence, and where it is, we need to denounce it for what it is it is an enemy of truth and an enemy of justice i want to know what
2: he thinks about cardinal brady cardinal sean brady was told in 1975 that a young boy was being abused at that particular point he was given that man's name that boy's name that boy's address where he lived and yet that boy was abused for another year his sister was abused for seven years, his four first cousins were abused until 1988. Many years past the 1975 information that Cardinal Sean Brady, now primate climate of all Ireland, was given that
8: information. What you're telling me um, is, helps us emphasize the fact that when we talk about an adequate response, and we're talking about abuse happening, it cannot be a delayed response. The response to disclosure should be immediate and effective. And that is why the law was changed in 2010, because we are on a learning curve, giving the bishop authority to remove a priest as a precaution measure, immediately.
2: Cardinal Sean said in 2009 that he would resign if, if he thought that any failing on his part meant or led to any child being abuse, he said he would resign. Should he not resign now? I think that is a question you have to put to Cardinal Brady. You are the chief prosecutor as such in terms of the canon law. Do you not have an
8: opinion on this? I have my opinion and I will keep it to myself. This is about accountability? you spoke about accountability? Yes, today. yes, and I think that what I said about accountability is that the Holy See has a duty to, uh, to bring bishops to accountability is something that needs to be done and needs to be affected but this is where I stop with my comments on an individual case. Systems say the key is to get
2: individuals, to get bishops, to get the church to acknowledge its responsibility. You've heard that time and time again. Here is another case where a bishop, a Cardinal, is not acknowledging his responsibility, his personal responsibility.
8: I repeat that this is something that should be put to Cardinal Brady directly. And uh, I will talk to him because he is in town about what you've told me. I will bring your concerns to him, because I think that that is the duty I have in charity. Thank
2: you. Later, a special prayer vigil seeking forgiveness for the sins of the church against children. A solemn ceremony where Cardinal Brady makes his only public utterance of the week.
5: But you are a god of pardon, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in mercy.
2: I don't think anyone could doubt the sincerity of the prayers of Cardinal Sean Brady seeking forgiveness. The problem he has and the problem the church has is that many people, especially those affected by what he did or didn't do back in 1975, they want more than his prayers. They want him to acknowledge his own personal
3: responsibility for what happened. They want his resignation. We live in the age of apology so that watching the church, learning, and obviously they got a great deal of help from PR companies in how to do this, how to present themselves as totally sorry. And, you know, sorry became the easiest word to say, apologize, apologize. But everyone was watching something else. Everyone was watching that they were not coming with full disclosure. And the full disclosure was that they knew that priests were moved from place to place with a, good, a large number of other priests knowing exactly what the issues were and parents watching this knew that was not something that parents would have done in Ireland to other parents and the church did it to them
2: Cardinal Brady never replied to the questions in my letter so I went and put them to him directly Cardinal Brady, Dara McIntyre from the BBC, Cardinal Brady I'd like to answer a couple of questions if Cardinal, you don't mind. No, I'm, I'm not um, Thanks, Thanks very much, and I'm not, Cardinal not ready, you said it? that you would resign if you thought that any action of yours had led to child being, being No, abused. no, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not. You know that children were abused because you failed to, in part because you failed to protect them. No, I did what I was there to do. With. I took the evidence. You had I'm names not. and addresses, Cardinal, of children I'm, I'm, who were being abused or who were at risk of being abused, and you I'm did not, not protect sorry. them. Sorry, oh, that's a good thing. Oh, Cardinal Brady? Oh, yeah. Cardinal Brady, was the protection of the church's reputation more important than the protection of the children? You had the names and addresses of children who were being abused or who were at risk of being abused. You
1: failed to protect them, Cardinal. He said, again
2: deliberately, willfully refusing to take responsibility for his actions, for his inactions, which left children exposed to abuse. So resplendent with power and authority was the Catholic Church in Ireland, its fall from grace was bound to be spectacular no one could ever have imagined that the Catholic Church would be so trenchantly criticized by an Irish Prime Minister. The rape and the torture of children were downplayed or managed to uphold instead the primacy of the institution, its power, its standing and its reputation. The Irish government has closed its embassy to the Vatican Dublin and the Holy See want to play down tensions. Yet it is clear that the Church is now having to pay a price for the grip it held Ireland in for so long. And as the Cardinal Brady case illustrates, it has not finished accounting for its sins just yet. Holy Roman
3: Catholic Ireland, the Ireland that you and I grew up with, where is it now? It doesn't exist anymore, and people have discovered that in abandoning their relationship to the official church and their loyalty to it, they've lost almost nothing. So how have they lost their faith? You know, if you ask them questions about, for example, the next life or eternal life or other man, if you ask them about religion, I think you could find that maybe very little has changed. But in relationship to the church, everything has changed. Mm -hmm.
2: Church attendance is more than halved across Ireland, but this ancient ritual is still very much alive. For more than 500 years, believers have celebrated the new year with a procession to do well at Termin in Donegal. <laughs> ceremony ends with the blessing of the holy water, but do well. The water is said to have special healing powers, but it is in great demand. The faith lives on and the people these, this faith is not dependent on bishops and cardinals or the hierarchical structures say. they're aware of it but this is a very much use the word earthed faith faith All right. policeman who investigated the Father Eugene Green case, remained skeptical the church will ever deal honestly with abuse. People who knew about this, I find them so revolting. Because it's them, you know, that did something. And I believe they they protected an image rather than protecting a child. And I believe that's where the whole fraud lies. That the premise of trust was used bury the most graphic horror. This is not to be tolerated in any civilized society. And for any institution to use its power to bury this horror, I believe those people should be sent to jail, basically, for those great crimes. And also, that day arrives, that everybody is equal, then I think, I think we're only be shadow boxing with this. Others, like Martin Gallagher, live with the daily reminders of the damage to their lives. It's part of my life of anything about it. I know that I was very happy when I childhood before this. I grew on great to everybody. and It was fun. Like normal children have <laughs> from the age of 12 on. I don't know where it could be or what I could have been. I might be been just some of the ordinary Martin, but put it cross to carry every day of my life. For the first time since their ordeal almost 40 years ago, Brendan meets his old friend from Belfast. There may be a future for them supporting each other, through the memories of an appalling experience that no child should ever endure.
4: Oh my God, buddy, how are you? Oh, yeah. oh. oh. goodness you. And you, and you. 28 huh? years now, huh? 28 years. I know,
2: oh. I know, bro. I know. Okay. Oh. How are you, keep it?
4: Right.
2: Yeah, uh, you. I'm all right. Yes. <laughs> You've been through the waters, And you? you. Uh-huh. Well, I knew. I thought I saved you. of Ireland, a memorial has been built here to the glory of those who fell in the war for independence. The tombs are well kept with flowers offered in homage to the loved and lost, and there is one communal grave. Here lie dozens of bodies, but
3: there are no dates of birth, no dates of death, and no names, just a simple epitaph so-called residents were in fact penitents,
2: innocent victims of a puritanical Irish society, women locked up for life, condemned to oblivion, anonymous even in death.
7: I was taken out of my home in the darkness at night time, the early hours of the morning when it was still dark, and I was taken to be picked up by the priest that was going to take me this unmarried mother's home my mother was coming along with me and it was a long journey and I was really I suppose very upset and um, I didn't know where I was going or what was going to happen to me I was very frightened actually so then we arrived at this place and uh, introduced to the nuns it was run by the nuns. It was a convent, Sacred Heart convent, Castle Pollard. And um, we were allowed to have tea together with the Reverend Mother of the home. And after that, I had to say goodbye to my mother, and I was left there in a completely strange place, a dreadful place, worse than a prison. In prison you had rights, here you had none. I never saw the front of this for two years, all at the back. Many girls from Cork City here as well. The nuns thought they made out that they were all unmarried mothers. They were not. They were not unmarried mothers. They made out they were mad. They were not mad. They simply disobeyed an order or whatever. A lot of them were put in by their own mothers and fathers because they did have babies. They locked away forever. When I got behind the doors, I was led away, and the clothes I was wearing were taken off me, and this big brown, shapeless dress was given me to wear. Um, my bra was taken off me, and they gave me a, a bodice that buttoned down the front that squashed you so tight up here to give you no shape whatsoever, you know. And um, I felt trapped. I felt like a caged animal. And from there on it was health. Um
9: When I went to Limerick, um, the first thing they asked me was my name. I said, my name was Rita. And they said, oh, good. We won't have to change your name because there's no other Rita here. So I said I wouldn't let you change my name anyway. You know I was going to keep my name, Rita. But uh, anyway, there wasn't another Rita there, so I was allowed to keep my name. I was then taken down to the convent part where all these women. I was absolutely amazed. They were so, so, so young and so old. These women had been there for years, you know, absolutely years. Some were like. 60, 70, 80, some were really old. There was one woman there, she had two walking sticks. She, was, she must have been 90.
3: Throughout the century, Ireland and its strict
2: Catholic morality banished to religious institutions those who were considered to be fallen women. Certain convents belonging to various orders were named the Magdalen Homes. Tens of thousands of girls and young women lived and suffered there particularly unmarried mothers, as they were then called. Rejected and abandoned by their families, they were locked up in the convents, sentenced to years, sometimes a whole life of penance for their sins.
7: It was in 1949, and I was 15, and I fell pregnant. Now, I didn't know at this time that I was pregnant even because I didn't know about the birds and the bees. And I was only once with this young chap. So when this happened to me, I, I really didn't know. It was my mother that first said it to me. I think she said, you're uh, going to a baby, but you're pregnant. And it still didn't, you know, uh, dawn on me what she was saying or the meaning of it what she was saying to me. Um, I couldn't believe, you know, what she was saying, really. But um, she was very, very upset, very, very cross, very angry. Uh, So was my dad. I remember my mother saying, like, we'll have to um, find a place for you to go and put you away and have this child because it would be so much of a disgrace. She would not be able to live with that. When I knew um, they were going to take me away, it was at Christmas time, and um, I spent a very, very sad Christmas. I suppose cried all the while. And uh, I remember my brothers and sisters saying, well, what's the matter? You know, why are you crying? And my mother had told me not to tell them. She said, you mustn't tell them anything. And um, when you go away, I will tell them that you've gone to employment, you've gone to a job, you've gone out to work. Yeah, it was a very unhappy time. It was a bitterly cold day, and it more or less snowed all the way up there. And when we got to this uh, place, it looked so bleak because it was surrounded with trees, and there was a big avenue up to us, and great big pillars on the outside of the front. As you got up to this, um, the convent part, I, I, I did not realise that when they took me there, I'd be there that long. You know. It didn't dawn on me that they meant it that they meant to keep me there. I'm sure there must have been a couple of hundred mothers there when I was there because the place was full. I could not believe all these lovely young women that was in there and all those lovely children. It was a terrible shame you brought in your family and the nuns repeatedly told us over and over again that we were there to do penance for our sin. But um, it was lovely when I had my baby. I didn't realize, I suppose, that I had to go through so much pain
1: it was a child.
7: I was really sure that my parents would relent and they would come to see us and that they'd take us home.
1: But never. Like all the other unmarried mothers. Angela knew she would not be allowed to keep her baby. Do you remember the day your child disappeared?
7: That it that took him from me, yeah. I was uh, allowed to um, get him up, a beautiful clothes laid out for him. I was allowed to bath him and dress him. And then that um, the sister... She comes to me and she said, it's time now, she said that uh, he was going. So. <laughs> and they walked to do the, these front doors. <laughs> And she said to him, you can't go any further. And uh, I had told him that he was going for a drive with the show of her, And that I'd, he was coming back.
1: That is, it. I don't know. Him waved. I do I just watched the heart disappear.
10: <laughs> was the, last
2: <laughs> the children were systematically taken from their mothers to be adopted or given to a foster family unmarried mothers were obliged to sign a form forbidding them from ever trying to find them. Many of the children were placed in orphanages, sharing the loss of thousands of other Irish children, separated from their families by a parent's death,
3: or born into extreme hardship, just another mouth that couldn't be fed.
2: land of orphans, crippled by poverty and deprived of social welfare, overburdened families were reduced to sending their children to orphanages. When many girls reached adolescence, they were judged to be in moral danger and transferred from the orphanage straight to a Magdalene home, joining the unmarried mothers in forced confinement.
7: I arrived here in 1950 as a 17-year-old, having committed no crime, hurt nobody, wasn't tried by any court or any judge, I simply disobeyed an order and was taken back to the orphanage where I was brought up from the age of 12. And after having an examination to make sure I wasn't missing around boys, I was brought up here until the day I die. I don't think I'll ever forget walking up here. I had an idea what it was, a place for bad girls. I didn't know what bad girls were. And what I experienced in there will never, ever go away from me. The woman that was with me just pushed me in, in front of her. And that was it. I remembered the nun, her, the way she was dressed and her face. There was no smile. And I realized that here I was. And I wasn't going to get out. And all there was worrying me was, why was I here? What did I do? What did I do? And she said, don't be crying now. She said, because God brought you here to this very safe place. God brought me here. That, the orphanage part... The orphan children were, although we never seen them. We heard them. In here, is where the nuns were. On this building. And over there, that's where women like me were. The Magdalens. The mad women. The unmarried mothers. The sinners. That's where we were. It wasn't a life. It was an existence. It was not a life. There was nothing to enjoy. There was nothing to look forward to. No visitors. Everything revolved around work and pray and pray and pray. You couldn't even talk to another girl individually or another woman. There was no individual contact. There was no newspaper. There was no radio. There was no book, only, of course, books with prayers. But that was all. The, it is the bed, up, work, pray, bed, seven days a week.
2: Today the convent has been abandoned and belongs to the University of Cork. Perhaps one day a young woman will return here to study the history of these walls. She will learn that more than 150 women lived here permanently at any one time. She will learn, too, that the Magdalen Homes were created in the 19th century as a refuge for prostitutes, and that the spirit of charity was taken up by a harsh and pitiless society that reviled sex outside of holy matrimony and was determined to punish those who sinned. She will learn that the women who entered the convent had their hair cut and their personal possessions confiscated. Even their names were taken exchanged for the name of a saint. Probably she will never know that Mary became Myra, and that Myra the orphan would cry for the freedom she had never known, years, the tears of all the unmarried mothers whose children were snatched away. But the one thing everyone does know is that behind these convent walls the women were forced to work. Eight, nine, or ten hours a day, six days a week, 52 weeks a year, the Magdalen women worked in the Magdalen laundries.
7: Down there is the laundry room. There would be laundry room where the ironing would be done. There'd be laundry room where there was big tablecloths put through machines. But this was where all the washing was done. Ten big machines, washing machines, huge ones, with bells going around, and about five or six big um, things that dry them. And in the summer the laundry was it like it'd be out in the desert. It was so hot. And in the winter you would have chin on, on your hands, with the cold, hand in the cold sheets, or whatever they were. And there was a nun there with you. She wasn't too bad. but They were there watching you all the time. She'd done very little work. she did done no work. Her job was to watch you. And of course, there were some of the older women that had been there for years, who um, would report anything if you were talking too long to one girl. And if you were talking, to said too long to one girl, maybe the next day you'd find yourself in another laundry room. It was slavery. What else was it? If you were working for somebody against your will and you're getting no wages, what else is it but slavery? Oh, girls from the country, girls from
9: the town, they're born in white, they're not going
7: and the Reverend the Mother, she's lied through the place, a tight little smile on the side of her face. She's running the show
4: at the Magdalen Laundry. She's got no place to call but the Magdalen Laundry. Well, mm. oh, Lord, won't you let me? Won't you let me? Won't you let me? The town Bridget's path
3: will probably never cross.
2: Bridget lives
3: with her children in Leeds in the North England.
2: Rita is an auxiliary nurse. For the past 30 years, she has lived a quiet life in the anonymity of London. Bridget and Rita do not know each other, but they share the same story, the same adolescence same joie de vivre, the same years lost in the same Magdalen home. The daughter of an unmarried mother, Rita was put in an orphanage. She was a somewhat rebellious teenager and so sent to Limerick in one of the five Magdalen homes run by the Good Shepherd Order. It was 1965 and Rita was just 17.
9: I sometimes wonder did the nuns bear, uh, you know, um, uh, bear a grudge against us, you know, because of the sins of our mother, as they would say, you know. I don't know. I don't think they had any respect for us because of where we came from. I mean, I, I don't know whether a lot of the nuns thought that a lot of our mothers maybe were prostitutes. You don't know. This is how like their thinking would be. Because somebody would have a child who's not married. You know what I mean?
7: You really can't tell how the nuns were thinking. You were were treated as if you were the biggest, hard-hearted criminal. But we were innocent. I was innocent. Because I'd only been out of St. Joseph's, I'd, I'd, I'd say about four months. That is what the taste of life I had for the first time from the age of two. I tasted what the outside world was like. It was quite frightening because I'd spent all my life locked up.
2: A few months after leaving the orphanage herself, Bridget returns to see her sister who was still a resident. The premises were next to one of Limerick's Magdalen homes. During her visit, she was literally kidnapped and locked up by the nuns. This is 1958, and Bridget is 16 years old.
7: And I can still hear, in my mind, as clear as anything, that black key opened this big brown door. And when I went through the brown door, there were two women, elderly women, all dressed in black, and had a white, sort of a hat on and put me to the and said so just the only words were take take over and they led me away and I could hear the key being locked behind me and I was kept in there for three years against my own wishes. I knew I had done nothing wrong. The only thing I'd done wrong was to go and visit my sister. And that's the reason. Uh I later questioned the nuns, and they said that it was for my own protection. They felt I was a a bit immature for my age. Which I didn't think I was, but that's how they put it over.
9: A lot of the women there never ever spoke of their lives before. You know, it was always like just general talk. There was only one woman I know who was there because she had a baby. And she did tell me that the first time she went to the Madeline laundry, that for the first couple of weeks, and um, she used to, when she, like at night time, she used to dip all her underwear in, in water, hoping that she catch pneumonia and die. This is the truth, because she wanted to die. She didn't want to be there.
7: There was no spark of light That you could even look and hope would happen. Nothing.
1: It was just like a living hell. But you never knew
7: if you were ever, ever going to survive it. And to this day, I still think how many people have survived. And how many people have actually committed suicide to get out of that trap because it was a trap
9: I actually left because I ran away i mean i was the, I got out because I ran away. It wasn't because I was let out you know I mean I literally was the only one there that rebelled. I mean, I stood up and i I just In fact, one day the nun took me to her office and blessed me with holy water because I had the devil in me. (laughs) It's true. We were just there to do a job for them and make money for them. We didn't get paid for doing the laundry. The food was very bad. I was always complaining actually about the food. We weren't allowed to speak when we were eating. And I used to speak anyway, I mean, I just didn't, I used to just speak. I used to smoke, I wasn't allowed to. And they decided then that they would send me for the laundry. They'd done the laundry for the whole of Limerick. There's colleges, the hotels, the hospitals. It wasn't only the Madden laundry where we were working. There's three parts to Limerick. So they had laundry everywhere in Limerick. The
2: nuns and the repentant sinners have now gone away but history sometimes reserves a nice ironic touch. Behind the former convent, the washing machines still turn, and Limerick's dirty laundry is as white as it ever was. Ireland had about ten Magdalene homes until the decline set in with the 70s consumer society boom in washing machines, and the Vatican softened on certain moral standpoints. With less business and fewer sinners, the Magdalen homes closed their doors one after the other. But Ireland didn't seem to care about the pest. Were the Magdalen Maundries profitable institutions? Nobody knows. How many women trudged along these penitential passages between dormitory and washhouse, out of sight and out of mind? The few historians who have researched the subject
3: suggest the figure was over 30,000.
2: After a few years' penitence, most of the Magdalene women were entitled to leave their prison, depending on the goodwill of the nuns. But nobody has access to the different orders' records if they exist. How many women spent their whole lives, or died?
1: When
0: they came to me and they asked me to do this, and when I finally did agree to do this, I told them unequivocally, I will do this review, but if I find out that there's indications that Paterno was involved in covering up, I will not be silent. I'm not going to sign a non-disclosure agreement that says I will not tell anybody about that. I will be as vocal about it if I find good things about Paterno as I will if I find bad things about Paterno. They said, we have no problem with you doing that. We are that confident. And I said, all right, but be advised. Hello,
11: everyone. I'm Alison Hope Weiner, and welcome to Media Mayhem. Today, we've brought back our one of our favorite guests, Jim Clemente, to join us to talk about the Sandusky scandal and also a report that he's done on behalf of the Paterno family looking at the original report into the Sandusky scandal um, by Louis Free. So let me just remind everybody who, uh, if you're a regular viewer of Media Mayhem, you know um, Jim Clemente. who's a former top FBI agent with 22 years of criminal investigations experience, and he's nationally recognized, internationally recognized expert in the field crimes of sex crimes investigations, sex offender behavior, child sexual victimization, and child pornography. Um, he's also investigated thousands of cases involving serial murder, and we also, we had him on here last time talking about serial killers. Um, And he writes for Criminal Minds um, since 2005. So, welcome to the show. Thank
4: you, Alfred. It's always great to be back.
11: I really appreciate you being here, especially because we're going to be talking about something really important important here. First of all, let me bring up the, the viewers up to speed. As you all remember, jury convicted Jerry Sandusky last June on 45 counts of child sex abuse related to at least 10 victims over the last two decades, including 1998 and 2001 incidents. And he remains in jail awaiting sentencing. He's serving 30 to 60 years in state prison, which is, constitutes a, a veritable life sentence. Now, um, you actually ended up doing a report for the Paterno family, um, and the, the report was commissioned by the Paterno family, and it calls the July 2012 free report that was done by Louis Free, an investigation into how the Sandusky scandal was handled by the higher-ups at Penn State Um The report was accepted by Penn State trustees before unprecedented sanctions were levied by the NCAA against the school's football program, and what your report, looking at the free report, has called it a total failure that is full of fallacies, unsupported personal opinions, false allegations, and biased assertions. The Paterno um, report targeted nearly every conclusion that was made in the free report, and it was made up of, there were three of you working on the report. I guess it was former U.S. Attorney General Dick Thornburg, Richard Thornburg, and Dr. Fred Berlin, who's a treating psychiatrist, psychologist, and expert in sexual disorders and pedophilia at Johns Hopkins. So let's just start off with how did this report come about?
0: Well, first of all, I did not know the other experts that they hired until last week after I had written my report. Basically, the... the maternal Family hired a law firm, and that law firm engaged experts in various fields that have to do with investigation and sex crimes. And so they called me up and asked me if I'd get involved in the investigation. And to tell you, 2000 at first I said no, I didn't, I didn't want to get involved in it. Um, at the time, I was recovering from some health issues, and I, I did not want to get involved in something that I thought had been completely investigated. And they asked me, would I please at least read the pre-report and find out if the conclusions that were drawn in there are supported – in that report, in their uh, in the evidence that they put forth. right. And so I agreed to do that. And when I did read it, I was shocked. I, w- I was shocked because the word grooming shows up one time in the report, and nothing, not a single word of nice guy, pillar of the community, acquaintance offenders. Nothing about nothing at all about compliant victimization by children, and also no analysis on grooming. And that is the foundation of this investigation you cannot do an investigation into into what jerry sandusky did at this school and not take into account the dynamics of acquaintance child sexual sexual victimization so anyway that's the the background they asked me to do it once i once i found that out i said yes i'll do a complete analysis of this report and i'll read all the trial testimony i'll read all the articles and some books and anything else that's out there and talk to as many people as i can about this and when I did, it became extremely clear that there were major flaws in this report. And unfortunately, it, it, it turns out to be a major disservice to victims of child sex crimes because it blames the culture of football and it makes it seem like it could never happen in any other place. The fact is, it is happening right here, right now, in thousands of communities across this country. In organization, any youth-serving organization is vulnerable to this type of offender because he smiles in your face, he does wonderful things for kids, and yet in privacy, he's molesting children.
11: So do you think that, I mean, it blames the the culture of football. Is the culture of football not to blame? I mean, Mm it seems that your point is, is that it's not just the culture of football, but other cultures. But the culture of football did play a role in this or not?
0: Oh, I think, you know, in any organization, any organization on the planet wants to preserve its reputation. However... It has to know what's going on. It has to know the nature of the bad thing that's happening to want to be able to protect it, itself from it. And I will say unequivocally, absolutely, Joe Paterno did not choose to protect football over the lives and, and welfare of children. He did not do that. He simply did not know that Jerry Sandusky had any victims. Free made a point of saying that, that, that Free or the other at the, and the administrators at the school didn't say anything about the children, until after Sandusky was arrested well that 's when he first knew that he had that, that Sandusky had victims because no children came forward. No ch- child spoke publicly saying that Sandusky had molested them. Not okay, one. so that kind over of for many but, years.
11: But that kind of flies in the face of the 2001 incident in the shower no. with with uh, Mr. McCreary. Right. right. The
0: child victim did not come forward. Nobody came forward and said he didn't even come forward to McCreary. McCreary is a six foot four and a quarter, two hundred plus pound man, and he's standing less than ten feet away from this child, and the child did not say help me. The child did not say, I'm being hurt. He did not say, I'm being victimized. That's what's called compliant victimization. It's the result of grooming. It's not some kind of violent guy who, who grabbed a kid and tried to rape him. It's a guy who groomed the kid into a situation where he felt he couldn't speak about it. And then McQuarrie looks at that and says, you know, what's going on here? Is this guy who I've always looked up to, this coach, doing something bad to a kid? Why, if he is, why is this kid not coming to me? Why is he not reaching out for help? So McQuarrie runs away. Because he can't, it doesn't compute in his brain. So the only thing that makes sense here is that he was so turned over by what he saw. He was so, like, blown away and baffled that he couldn't report it to his father accurately or Dr. Dranov accurately and even less accurately to Joe Paterno, who... Who was somebody he really looked up to and idolized? He said he would not use any sexual words to Paterno. It's well, so no it wonder if Paterno didn't get the the point of what he was saying.
11: Now, but in the a conversation with between McCreary and Paterno, first of all, he calls him up and says, "I want to see you on a weekend." And Paterno says, "I'm not giving you a a, a different and a better job." Or he, well, right
0: there, there had been a coach that had just left, and he, right. he thought that McCreary was calling up about that job. Okay, yes.
11: so then I, I know, but I, I, I and I'm just trying to say it for the viewers. But basically, them. McCreary says, it's important. So Paterno agrees to see him on a weekend, which seems to be a big deal for these guys because they keep referencing the fact that they don't do things on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, So then he goes over to talk to Paterno, and Paterno actually says in his statement, I guess, to the press, he said something to the press about the fact that he was very upset. He was having trouble even getting out the words. Right. I mean, so... There is an acknowledgment that this is a, a younger boy. Even Paterno says he assumed it was somebody who was like a teenager because those are the people that
7: just generally
11: helped in his in his charity. Mm-hmm. So you're
0: saying that
11: it's based on your investigation, that Paterno didn't know that there was a male, that there was
0: a victim involved here? No. What I'm saying is he didn't know that he was being sexually victimized. Look, but there was
11: a slapping sound. I mean, any yes. of that, is that, does that come well, later? Certainly, the details? Certainly,
0: McCreary did not tell him there were slapping sounds. Certainly, McCreary did not tell him any details. He said that Jerry Sandusky was in the shower with the boy. Well, Joe Paterno's own son had been in the shower a number of times with Sandusky. It is just something that happens around sports. Men who are coaches, men in YMCA shower with every kid. day, they shower with kids. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as there's no sexual or nefarious intent. And, in fact, Joe, like I said, Joe's son's son, at least one of them, had already had had showered with Sandusky before. What got to Paterno at that point, And if you read Poznanski's book about Paterno, because he, he was he was actually doing an extensive biography on him, Poznansky asked Joe a bunch of these questions, and Joe said, Listen, McQuarrie came to me, and he was very upset, and he, could, he was having trouble getting the words out. So I said, you don't have to tell me the words, but I'll find out who in the university you have to report it to. And then he went to the head of, head of the athletic department and the, the, the vice president in charge of the university police department, and he told them the very next day. I mean, Free makes a big thing about he says that McQuarrie reported the very next day to Paterno, but Paterno waited because he didn't want to ruin their weekend. Right. Well, guess what? Uh, Free knows damn well that he did ruin their weekends. One hour after McQuarrie left his house, Paterno was on a plane to Pittsburgh. He was there overnight. The very next time, minute he had to talk to the to Curley and Schultz, he had them in his house and he reported to them. That's how important it was to him. But, but I mean, when you, when
11: you're saying something that just doesn't—it doesn't quite make sense here because okay. you're saying Paterno got that something bad was going on here. Paterno,
0: no, well, you have to look at it in context of everything. You okay. can't take this isolated in, okay. in an isolated case. What What you have is Paterno hears that Sandusky was in the shower with a boy and, he, and, and McQuarrie. And that, now, remember, there's no contemporaneous documentation of the words he said, but his recollection 10 years later is that he, he implied to the coach that, they, that it was way over the line, and that's why he was so upset about it, because he wouldn't use sexual terms with the coach. So Paterno says, look, Sandusky does not work for me. I don't have any contact with him. I've never socialized with the man. I have no way of actually investigating this. I'm not an investigator. I'm not an expert in this field. I'm going to turn it over to the administrators who are and who are responsible for this, which is what it says in in the code of that university. So he did that, and he said he stepped out to let them deal with it. He let... He let McQuarrie talk to them directly. He did not influence what McQuarrie said to them. He did not tell McQuarrie, don't tell anybody else. He did not do anything in terms of limiting what they do in, in their investigation. He stepped out of it because he was not an expert in this field. And he turned it over to people. He, he admittedly said, I didn't know how to deal with this. I turned it over to people who I thought could handle it. I trusted Tim Curley. He's a great administrator. But, but
11: the free report made a point of stating that nobody checked on that boy.
0: Well, wait a minute. They went to Second Mile. Second Mile is where that boy almost absolutely came from. They told the director of Second Mile what happened. The director of Second Mile then told two trustees at Second Mile. The director of Second Mile is a mandated reporter. He's, he absolutely has to report. If he ha- hears of a uh, valid uh, uh, allegation, of sexual victimization, he has to report it. But the problem is what McCreary told them was a man in a shower right. in a, with a, a man in the shower with a boy. And he, they got from his implications that he was horsing around with this boy in the shower. And we'll talk about yeah but horsing around doesn't mean sexually assaulted.
11: I'm still having trouble with the fact that this is a common thing that everybody's showering together. Just seems well, like Dusky took a lot of showers in there with all the boys. I'm sure he did. Yeah, they, I mean, that doesn't seem so common to me because i played sports and, and, like, grown-ups generally would, like, shower it later. Well, I mean, they weren't exactly happen, doing anything. That any may
0: happen of, in female showers, right? but in men, men locker rooms, many times they're big gang showers. But the point is, they, well, it's just something you're used to. I mean, okay. that's certainly how I grew up. Okay, and it just it, sounds... You know, I mean, I guess at this point, it's very difficult to... You may be uncomfortable with that, but that's the reality. It it was a gang shower. Okay. okay? But then he took kids to other private showers later, but it's not unusual. And
11: he was showering late at night, right, when nobody was there. It was just the two of them in the shower, and it was just... Okay. So let me just get back to what really, I guess, I'm getting at with all Mm -hmm. of these questions. How The fact that you did this report, that you did this investigation, and you're basically going line by line over what free the conclusions Free made in his report, the sort of subtext to Free's report about just even when I said nobody was doing anything, there's a lot of subtext to that report. And there's also out and out allegations that Paterno and nobody else at Penn State acted to help any of these children um, were in the Free report, which ended up resulting in these NCAA um, uh, violations. Consequences. Right. So let me ask you this. How do you respond to allegations that the report isn't about justice, but it's more about clearing and burnishing Paterno's image because he was fired by the university and as they took his statue down? I mean, it was sort of like that Saddam Hussein kind yeah. of moment. I,
0: I, so how I can do you absolutely respond, to respond to that? When they came to me and they asked me to do this, and when I finally did agree to do this, I told them unequivocally, I will do this review. But if I find out that there's indications that Paterno was involved in covering up, I will not be silent. I'm not going to sign a nondisclosure agreement that says I will not tell anybody about that. I will be as vocal about it if I find good things about Paterno as I will if I find bad things about Paterno. They said we have no problem with you doing that. We are that confident. And I said, all right, but be advised. Did you say that before you read the report? Yes, I did. Okay. And then, and then, when after I read the report and I gave them my preliminary findings, just I just I, what I did was I wrote down the conclusions that he wrote, and then I looked for the support in his own report, and I was like, they're not there. And if you look at it, they they make this big thing about the quantity of interviews and. And documents that they reviewed, well, let me just tell you a little bit about that, 430 interviews, but the 16 most critical interviews, the people that were actually involved in that, they did not do it. Because, why? Because the Attorney General was doing an investigation in that area, and they didn't want to step on that investigation. Well, the problem is that you can't come out with a report like this, with final conclusions like this, without having actually interviewed those people. They should have waited until that point when they got all that information, then made their conclusions. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that...
11: So this- significant evidence missing from the report because they were not able to interview all these principles.
0: And, and so the foundation of this investigation, which should have been compliant child sexual victimization, was gone. It was just wiped out. They couldn't go there, which made it a completely flawed report from the start. Let me just thing,
11: stop you here about the compliant uh, victim sexualization. Is that what you keep saying? Yes. Could you explain that?
0: Yes, absolutely. First of all, there's two concepts that are very unique to this kind of offense. And one is nice guy acquaintance offenders and the other is compliant victimization and the bridge between those two is grooming okay so let's talk about nice guy offenders people have and we've long talked about stranger danger everybody who talks about these kinds of cases uses the word predator or monster or evil the problem with that is these offenders and there are many 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 more of these than there are monster predators and you know uh, stranger danger kinds of offenders They make up a small percentage of the actual offenders in this country. The vast majority of children who are victimized are victimized by people they know, people that we hand them over to, or people they love, people in their own family. So we have to be realistic about that. So the nice guy offender is somebody who, to the community, he grooms the community by doing nice things. He does nice things for children. He pays them attention, affection makes them feel special, and that's how he ingratiates himself with the child. He he aims it also at the parents and guardians and at the community that surrounds them. That's the nice guy offender side of it. Grooming is basically a bunch of innocent-looking behaviors that actually create a bond between other people and himself and actually throw up sort of a smoke screen or or, create a blind spot around him because when people are looking for monster predators, they look right past the guy that's in front of them because he's smiling and he's nice and he's kind and he's helpful. That's what they think he's actually helping kids. Then we're talking, then compliant victimization. And this is probably the most counterintuitive one of them all. It's something Paterno probably asked himself. Why haven't, if Sandusky was doing all this for all these years, why haven't any of these kids come forward? Not one came forward. Nobody came out and said anything about it. And it's because, especially boy victims of a male, sex offender, they don't want to talk about this. I was victimized myself as a kid. I didn't talk about it for 10 years. I didn't report it to anybody because, well, I went to actually the priest in my high school and he told me, you know, I forgive you for your sins, don't say anything more about this. So then I didn't say anything for 10 years until I actually actually got involved and started an investigation into, into the case against my, the guy who offended against me. But anyway, what happens is there's a whole bunch of dynamics, shame, guilt, uh, embarrassment, and, you know, the, the threat to your manhood or sexuality, all those things are reasons in addition why male victims don't come forward. And what happens is they become compliant in their victimization in that the offender is giving them things that they need as children. They need nurturing. He's taking advantage of that. Or tickets or things. Or, 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 tickets or, things or, or exciting adventures or just attention or, you know, just the basics of life. It, it, it span a spectrum of things. And what happens is that you have now a boy who is, vulnerable and needy and now for the first time they're feeling special the first time they're getting their needs met and at the same time they realize now it's usually slowly over a period of time where he tests the waters which sandusky did very well he tries to hide his behavior in other things like he put his hand on their their knees and see if they knocked it off and if they did he'd do it again and again until they stopped knocking it off and then he'd take it further and further and further and he had he'd wrestle around with them you know during you know wrestling message and he'd tuck them in at night and blow on their stomachs and you know, getting closer and closer to sexual activity. And I see you're making faces and it's uh, difficult sorry. for you. Yeah, no, yeah. it's just like, it's difficult for everybody here, but unless we talk about it, it's gonna we're gonna have more kids who are victimized. So what ends up happening and it we call some just said he was so systematic and he was. that sort of deter- you just But he did that in private. Yeah. He did he was very careful to do that part in private. But all the altruistic things he did in public, Joe Paterno saw this man doing Thousands of things. Thousands of interactions where he raised money for kids. He, 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 he encouraged difficult, kids with difficulties. He helped them. I mean, they say Second Mile helped 100,000 children over those years, and he personally probably 10,000. He, he fostered over 24 children. He adopted six children. Everybody was looking at that as a great thing. Today, we know what it really was. This is his hunting ground. This is, he used Second Mile to hunt for children. They did all the work for him. They brought the kids to him. So they, when we say they're compliant victims, it doesn't mean that they're bad. It means that they're developmentally immature, and they were manipulated into a relationship where they actually said they would put up with the victimization because they're getting their needs met. And some of them wish so they, they, and, so, they but could But they had them. to be groomed, though, to be compliant. They were compliant to that. Okay. All right. And if you don't even talk about grooming in this report, if you don't even mention nice guy offenders, if you don't even understand compliant victimization, then how could you understand McQuery's behavior? How can you understand paterno's behavior how can you understand even sandusky's behavior without talking about So that? basically
11: the problem then is that they look at these men in a va- in a vacuum without the context so you, you said they haven't given it the right context to even look at their behavior Absolutely. So you need the context to look at paterno's it, behavior you look
0: something through the wrong filter you're going to get the wrong impression from it that's okay. basically it
11: okay so and um you advise them if, if the report was going to be uh unfavorable, that you would come forward with whatever the findings were? And is there anything else that you want to say in terms of uh, whether or not the goal of this report was to reverse I, and to tar- burnish his image and also change what the NCAA look,
0: did to the school? Yeah, look, personally, I've never met Joe Paterno. I never met his family till last Wednesday. I I've never watched a single Penn State football game. I don't watch college football. I don't watch pro football. It's not something that's important to me. I did it because my life's work has been trying to prevent child sexual victimization. Ever since I was victimized as a kid, I've had that understanding of how harmful it can be. And fortunately, I got to fight back. I got to learn about it. I got to investigate the guy who victimized me and put him in jail. And then I got recruited into the FBI to work these cases. I've been, the very first assignment in the FBI in 1987 was on the FBI NYPD Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force. And since then I've learned a tremendous about, amount about this and I've become an expert witness in this field. And what was most important to me and should be most important to everybody, I don't care about a damn statue. I don't care about a, an individual's um, reputation. What I care about is that the world learns that in order to fight acquaintance child molesting, we have to understand that just because somebody smiles in your face, just because they're a good person, just because they help children, just because they love children, doesn't mean that they can't be also sexually assaulting them. And we have to actually, if, here's the thing. If somebody comes up to you and they're a complete stranger and they want to spend time with your child, take them on an overnight trip, give them gifts, what are you going to do? You're going to shut them down. You're going to keep them as far away from your kid as possible. Well, I'm telling you right now, If they're a friend of yours, if you know them well, it's still a red flag. Dive into it. Find out. Ask questions. Make sure you you protect your child. Make sure your child knows that even though it's a good person, that person can try to do bad things to you. And if they do, you're there. And you love them and you support them. And nothing they say or nothing they do can ever change your love for them. And if they know that and if they feel comfortable talking to you about sex, you have to be comfortable Talking to them about sex, but they have to also be comfortable talking to you about sex. Otherwise, they can't help protect themselves, and you can't protect them.
11: Okay. So now let me let's go into the specifics of what sure. you found that was wrong with the report, besides that entire context missing, <laughs> sure. which is not it's a, a small fair. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, first, you you also noted that no evidence exists that Paterna concealed critical information about Sandusky, and that kind of popped out to me. So do you? So we're we're sitting here saying that he told McQuarrie to report what had happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were also reports to Second Mile Mm -hmm. about what had happened through McQuarrie. So, and we just discussed, is there, what else do you think, I mean, bolsters, I guess what else do you have to support the fact that, no evidence existing to steal critical information because that is really at the crux of why he was fired and why everybody's so outraged about what they think his behavior was.
0: Well, Allison, we're fortunate to live in a country where everybody has the presumption of innocence. That's where we start. So in order to accuse somebody, well, it should start there. I know. It's more
11: likely. Everybody says that to me, and I'm like, almost nobody thinks that. They think as soon as somebody's indicted that they're guilty, as soon as there's a Speculation well, about The was never indicted.
0: There's never been any speculation. In fact, the, the G- Attorney General said he cooperated fully with this investigation. He is not a subject of this investigation. So that's the fact in this case. Well, I They're find d- that more persuasive than we live in a country. No, but what I'm saying is we start, what we should start from is we need to find evidence before we accuse somebody. And what, what Free used as his standard was a reasonable conclusion. Reasonable conclusion ne- means nothing more than It's possible that this happened. There's no evidence behind that. That standard is not used in any court of law, whether civil or criminal. It's not even enough to get a a damn search warrant or an arrest warrant. It is so basic. The fact is that years ago, it was a reasonable conclusion that the moon and the sun revolved around the earth. Why was it reasonable? Because they had limited information, and they saw the moon and the sun revolve around the earth. One of those conclusions was 100% correct. The moon revolves around the earth. But the other one, 100% false. And what I'm saying is because Free didn't have enough information and he didn't use the context of acquaintance child sexual victimization, his conclusions, even if he calls them reasonable, were 100% wrong.
3: Well, it seems odd
11: that somebody with bad experience would be rather flippant about a sort of Not flippancy at all. It's because No, but the notion... Let me just finish. The notion that free would say that it was a reasonable conclusion Has doesn't give any context to this whole area no. of the law, but does he not have any kind of I mean, he whole area of to do
0: anything further? But here's the thing. I mean, does he have I, no background in this at all? No, his, any, his I guess that's where I go yeah. with that question. He does not have, he does not, he certainly doesn't have any background in investigating these kinds of cases. However, we have, you don't have to just be a child sex crimes expert. You have to be an expert in the field of acquaintance child sexual victimization, which is something that Ken Lanning, who was my mentor, has been teaching about for 40 years. I've been doing it, for, learning and teaching about it for the last 30 years. And basically, what's happened here, it's not, I'm not saying that we wasn't took it, didn't take it seriously. What I'm saying is, emotionally, most people go to the area of the stranger danger, right? And and that these guys cannot do this without help. They could not get away from it with it, certainly for decades, without help. Without people is,
11: turning a blind eye. Yeah,
0: the fact is that's not true. In the Catholic Church cases, the average, the average was more than 30 years for men to come forward that were victimized as children. The average. All right, some of them are 40 and 50 years later. The fact is victims don't want to talk about it, especially if they're male victims, because it hurts so much of their manhood to do so. So I think Free took it seriously. But he, was, he went down the wrong road because he was thinking of it in terms of these,
5: you know, the innocent
0: angel victim and the monster predator. And I'm not saying that these children that were victimized are not innocent. What I'm saying is they're compliant victims because they put up with the victimization in many cases. They didn't know who to turn to because this is Jerry Sandusky. Nobody's going to believe me when I say something about this guy. It's not the, the culture of football, though, because it's every kind of culture – that would draw kids. Every youth serving organization, whether it's the scoutmaster or the priest or the football coach or the baseball coach or the swimming coach, the guy who offended against me was my basketball coach. He was the director of this camp. I mean, I looked up to the man. I thought he's, you know, he's like what I want to be when I grow up. And then he used it against me. So basically, let me just ask you then, it sort of goes to this direct
11: question. Do you really believe, looking at the report and at your investigation, that there was no effort by anyone involved in this whole investigation to keep it quiet to protect Penn State? I'll tell you exactly
0: what I believe. I believe that the, the only evidence that we have of anybody hiding anything from the authorities is with respect to Schultz. All right? Now okay, they, can they you have, explain it yes, me I to will. everyone? All right. Okay. So uh, Curley was the athletic director. Mr. Schultz was the uh, vice president in charge of facilities. Okay, so he his athletics would come under his genre and so would the university police department so mr schultz apparently had a file that they've later discovered had been hidden or kept kept private and it had a number of notes and emails in it and so forth Um, paterno certainly had there's no evidence that paterno knew anything about that file or that helped helped, help hide that file But that that still, Schultz, he's still innocent until proven guilty, but he's going to go to trial soon on that case. And we'll find out. So is Curley and Spaniard. All three of them have been indicted for perjury and related charges. But Paterno was alive when Curley and Schultz were indicted, but he was not indicted because he was fully cooperative. And what you'll see if you read his statements is that many of them are not self-serving at all. He was not trying to spin. He was trying to. He's an 84 year old man who apparently was suffering from undiagnosed cancer at the time. Who who didn't who had had slight failures of memory. He didn't know the details. But I think his statements
11: are. Uh, this is where he could have benefited from better counsel, because his statements are, in fact
0: too confused I mean it, it actually but they show that after 10 years or 12 years or 13 years you can't remember specific words that you use in a conversation and to, it's irresponsible for somebody to quote somebody 10 years or 12 years after the event and say those are the specific words they use in the conversation that's absolutely not done it's, it's, not, it's not proper in a criminal investigation at all but the fact is that if you look at Paterno's behavior and if you look at the statements that he made to his biographer he goes, because the biographer asked him all the detailed questions. Okay. What did McQuarrie tell you? He said he wasn't even sure what he saw. He was questioning it. He said he thought he might have seen something in a mirror, but he wasn't sure, and he was having trouble talking about it, so I told him he didn't have to tell me the details. He should tell the administration and the school the details. And unfortunately, what McQuarrie's difficulties did Paterno a great disservice because if he had been explicit, if he had said, I believe Sandusky was having sex with that boy in the shower. If he had simply said those words to Paterno, I believe Joe Paterno, the man he was, would definitely have called the police. But instead, he's saying that there's something went on in a shower, and he was in there with this kid. Well, it's happened before. What's, what's the problem? What did you actually see? He couldn't say those terms. Dr. Drainoff, who is a mandated reporter as well, asked him those difficult questions. What did you see that was sexual? Well, I heard the slapping sound. All right. Now,
11: with that uh, was Free aware? Did he talk to the biographer?
0: No, he didn't. Okay. The biographer was around, but he didn't talk to him. Um,
11: Which is a huge oversight. Uh,
0: I think so. Uh, yes.
11: Yeah. Yeah, okay. He didn't talk
0: to any family members either. Any of the paternal
11: family members. Well, let me ask you about the paternal family members since they commissioned this report. What is their view? I mean, to the extent that you've spoken with members of the family, and I know that Mrs. Paterno is making uh, is is making some television appearances. What what is their view of what went down here? I mean, obviously they are upset about how he was maligned, but where's do they have a concern for the fact that this man functioned within well, their group? In,
0: or, in order for me to maintain my independence, I did not ask their opinions about what happened. That's not, that wasn't my job. And you're going to have to watch those shows or whatever the statements they make because I deliberately did not ask them those details.
11: Well, wait, they said to out. you, let me just stop you. They said to you that this report, just read this report and you'll see that there are problems. They felt that the report was
0: unjust. And well, no, you, uh, their lawyer told me that. Right. Please read that report, and okay. I'm, I'm just saying, don't attribute that to, to the paternal family. I didn't have direct contact with I them got it. specifically okay. about the issues of what they thought happened. Okay. but I do I do know information from them about the, the you know the history of you know Paterno's actions and the history of his. Um, his, his life, you know, and, and what he did. And what I mean, kind of basically
11: what I'm getting from you is that Paterno is somebody who also didn't grasp this compliance. Of um, course he didn't. You, look, this,
0: you know, people are treating it as if he was the principal of a, of a grade school where you have to be aware of child sexual victimization issues. That's not the case in a college. A college, the athletes that Paterno dealt with were adults. They're young adults, but they're adults. That is not his bailiwick. He never had a, a minute of training on child sexual organization, and particularly not on c- compliant victims or, or nice guy acquaintance offenders. He didn't know anything about that. And so in his mind, he had to have been asking, if Sandusky actually is doing the things they're saying, then where are these kids? Why aren't they coming forward? Look at these boys. Look at that boy. He was in the shower with, paterna, with excuse me. He was in the shower with Sandusky. And he's throwing a, a football with him
11: today. Well, wow. see, I have a problem with that though, because there's some contemporaneous, contemporaneous sexual victimization. There's some of the church stuff that starts to, you know, come out in the late '90s. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm not sure that it seems like he's kind of functioning in a vacuum. He's an 80 year old man, so maybe. I mean, do you do you just make allowances for the fact? I mean, that mm-hmm. ignorance is his defense
0: here. No, I. First of all, the, the That's church, the way it sounds. Right. Okay, and I'll explain. Okay, in the church cases. You had victims come forward and say, this priest or these priests had sex with me. They did these specific acts. You had the church say, sign here, do not say anything else, and we'll pay for your, your treatment. I understand that. In other words, they shut them up. Right. Okay? You had actual victims come forward and say, these are the facts. You didn't have a secondary witness who's afraid to actually speak the words, who's implying something, and then you get into a game of telephone. Because when he's trying to imply, the inferences you draw may not be the same. And when Paterno was not somebody who spoke about sex, he was not somebody, he was approved. He was not somebody whose who sex would come to his mind first. So when crew was trying to imply sex to him, he didn't get it. And that, I, the, I can say from experience, from thousands of these cases. Earlier you said that I had investigated thousands of serial killer cases. I haven't investigated thousands of serial killer cases. I've, I've done in the hundreds on those. But I've done thousands of child sex crimes cases, and most of them are acquaintance child sex offender cases. There's also the people who abduct and sexually assault children, but they're an entirely different animal. But I've done thousands of these cases, and I see this exact same scenario every time. It has nothing to do with football. It has nothing to do with sports. It has to do with a man who's in an exalted position, who has groomed everybody in the community to think he's a good person, and everybody doesn't believe. It's just a disbelief as opposed to some kind of denial, knowing denial or knowing concealment. And so to get back to your first right. question, there is not a shred of evidence that Paterno knew anything uh, or did anything at all to actually limit where where this information went or how it was investigated. In fact, the, the, the email that, that Mr. Free basically holds his whole case excuse me, his whole case up with is a February 27th 01 email in which Curley writes to Schultz and Spanier that I, I am, uh, after thinking about it and talking it over with Joe yesterday, that's the point that brings in Joe Paterno. It's probably Joe Paterno that he's talking about. I feel uncomfortable with the, the next steps that we have. Instead, I want to go to Sandusky and tell him that we know about the 98 incident, that we know, that, he, that we believe he has a problem and that we, want to, that we feel a responsibility at some point to go to Second Mile and DPW, Department of Public Welfare, which has child and youth services under it. And he says, if he's cooperative, then we will go with him to Second Mile. But if he's not cooperative, then we have no choice but to go to DPW and Second Mile. So in that same email, that three that, that interprets as – Joe, influencing them not to go to DPW, there's two instances in which they will say they definitely will go to DPW. And in fact, though, if, you, if you read that in context of a any, uh, note by Schultz two weeks earlier, before the conversation with Joe, it's exactly the same thing. We will go to uh, DPW unless Sandusky confesses to having a problem. And they put it in quotes, right. because they're not talking about confesses to a crime, they're talking about confesses to having a problem. A boundary issue with Showering with boys, he shouldn't be doing that. We need him to stop that. He needs to understand that doesn't—that's not right. It doesn't look good. So, Bree builds this whole case on this email, a case against Paterno on this email, and and in fact, there's nothing there because they had already decided that same thing two weeks before they talked to Joe. And here's one more thing about that: Joe Paterno doesn't have an email account. Joe Paterno never had a cell phone or a smartphone or a laptop. He did not engage in electronic email. So. These emails that that Free says are evidence, they reference Joe Paterno. They're not by Joe Paterno. They're not to Joe Paterno. He had no way of knowing what they were saying in those emails. And so it's wrong to say that as conclusive proof. Free says one thing we know for certain is that uh, Paterno kept abreast of this investigation in 98. You don't know that for certain. What you have is two emails that reference Joe Paterno, one that says, I touched base with Coach. Nothing about the detail you gave, Coach. But don't you think he should have kept abreast? Well, uh, it, let's back up. We're talking about two different things now, because I bought it to 1998 instead of
5: 2001. I'm ta- well, let
11: me just uh, – you know what? Let me just bring it up, to Like, in 2011, my understanding is that – 2001,
5: right? That, no, but I'm oh, going all the way to the end oh, to to, okay, when he gets
11: arrested. He still had a key – us. He still had a key to that shower facility like right up until the time that he was arrested. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, of I, course, I, because no, nobody at the university knew that he was a molesting kid until he was arrested for it.
11: Okay, that's what I, I still I, – I guess what you end up having are a bunch of people that are concerned about something and don't – you're saying with paternal, which I have a little bit of a problem with still and I don't quite understand, no. that it's almost, you're almost sounding like an apologist for somebody who didn't know something because he hadn't studied it. But we do, based on what you told me and the evidence that you do have, it seems that he was aware from query that something was wrong. He did bring it to the attention of superiors or the people that he was supposed to. And then it seems as if he washed his hands of it because we don't have any evidence, there's a the secondhand, thirdhand, that he was staying abreast of anything.
0: So do you think that it was? We don't have any evidence because in 2004, the, the entire university – switched their computer program. They wiped out all their records from before that. We don't know what went back and forth during that time. The only reason why we have these emails that Free that, that, that found, and I, I'm glad he found them, was that Schultz kept them in a separate file. Oh, so, so
11: do we have any evidence that Paterno ever asked another question about this after
0: we know that, that yes, incident? We know from the query that at least two or three times over the next few months, he went to the query and said, are you okay with this? He went to find out if if everything was going well with McQuarrie, because he didn't want to interfere with McQuarrie's talking to the administration about it. He was very, concerned about people. He was concerned about McQuarrie's discomfort when he was talking to him, and he was always concerned. He is legendary, and I learned this after the fact, because I didn't know about the grand experiment or the great experiment, or whatever they called it, But, but he made sure that his school was one of the highest academically. His football team was mo- one of the most highest performing academically in the country because he cared about them as men. He knew only a tiny percent of them would go on to be professional football players and they needed to have a good education. That's how he cares about them. And The statements that I've read and heard about um, from him, you know, for example, when he, when, he did, when he did actually read the presentment and the statement that he made in public was if Sam Dusky did these things, then he fooled all of us. And we're really concerned about his victims and we want to make sure that they heal. He was very concerned about them, but he always to his deaths used the word if, because he was actually not convinced, even though all this stuff came out, that Sandusky was actually guilty because he knew the man. And that's the problem. We have to understand in the country that you have to look at people that you know and still look at those red flags as if those people were strangers. So wait a minute.
11: So did he? you said to me that he didn't know
0: him very well, that he didn't socialize with him, and he didn't like, have right. a lot of personal contact with him. So, of hours on the so which team.
11: is it? So he knew him or he didn't know him? He
0: didn't know him socially. He didn't. Well, for example, one of the things that, that has been said is that at the bowl games, they'd be at a hotel. Jerry Sandusky didn't socialize with Joe Paterno because Joe Paterno actually drank alcohol. Sandusky looked down on people who drank alcohol. That, to them, was like, this is a moral man. He goes to church. He's been married for 26 years. He doesn't drink. They thought he was a moral man. What, what it was, though, Sandusky then had an excuse to hang out with children who didn't drink. So they said, we'd be on the side of the pool drinking our drinks, and Sandusky would be in the pool playing Marco Polo but with the children. I guess
11: my question is, is that you're saying... The part of the problem here is that he didn't spend a lot of time with him and didn't know him that well. And then you also say but part of the problem was that he couldn't believe it because he knew him. So well, what did because, he know
0: and what didn't he know about him? What I'm life? saying is he didn't socialize with him, but he saw thousands over over the decades that he knew him, thousands of examples of where he helped
11: children. He knew the public um, advertised
0: version of 10 Of course, Nintendo. which okay. is what everybody knew. Okay. No, nobody, nobody, but he knew, but Sandusky knew everything that he was doing behind closed doors. But let me just, by the way, I want to mention this. Sure. The heroes of this case are two mothers.
11: Two I was mothers, just going to get to that. Really? So, no. Yeah. yeah it's no, it's great. so funny. This is my last question because it's about Alicia Chambers. Is that
0: who you were going to mention? Well, she's the, the psychologist that they went to. Right. But But the, the heroes are the two mothers. One mother whose son comes home and says, by the way, in, in case you're wondering, my hair's wet because I took a shower with Jerry. Well, the kid. This is what we call incremental disclosure. The kid was uncomfortable about what happened to him, and he didn't know how to say it to his mother. So he said, you know, basically, he's given her a hint. Ask me why my hair's wet. Basically, the mother talked to her son. Saw him, noticed the change in his behavior. Went to Lisa Chambers and told her about it. Lisa, Alicia interviewed the son. She had already been consulting with that child or, or counseling that child before, and and talked to him about it. And she said that Sandusky is pinging up all the red flags of a child sex offender. She said that. She wrote a report. That went up the chain and got lost.
7: I know. But, this but is the but
0: most it's, amazing thing. Because she did her job, and the mother did her job, and unfortunately the system failed both of them and the child.
11: And the thing that, it, 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 that really shocked me here
0: is the detective
11: has a, uh, has a report where he ruled out that the boy had been placed in a situation where he was being groomed for future sexual victimization. CSAC rec- lamented that someone speak with Sandusky, about the boundaries issue, right. that it keeps coming back to the boundaries. And
0: well, CSOC is the problem here. What CSOC did was he interviewed the child without reading any other reports. And in a one-hour interview, he determined that he, he, it's, all, it's all unbelievable how he just says, no, I've never heard of a 52-year-old becoming a, a parent. That's what I was becoming just about a saying. Becoming a right. pedophile, yeah. Most of them get away with it for decades. And clearly, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about if he did that. He was not a psychologist, by the way. He was still in school. He claimed he was a psychologist, or at least he, it seems like the police reports list him as a psychologist, so they referred to his, his recommendations. But basically, he didn't read Chambers' report. He didn't interview Sandusky, but, but another DPW guy did, and he determined that Sandusky just had boundary issues as well. But I think it was this, it was this telephone, this game of telephone, where the, 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 the DPW guy who interviewed Sandusky was going by what Schreckler, the detective, learned from CSOC, and CSOC didn't, wasn't doing his job right, but they're all sharing misinformation okay. now.
11: But the parents, I mean, I I, mean, I, I think we're going to have to stop here because we're out of time. One, but
4: One last ahead. thing.
0: But the only information Paterno would have gotten out of that was that the University Police Department, the Department of Public Welfare, Child and Youth Services, and the District Attorney's Office all cleared Sandusky on that case. He would not have known that this one made a mistake and that one made the wrong judgment and this one didn't do his job. All he knew was that Sandusky was cleared. So that would reinforce in his mind, yeah, there was nothing wrong with Jerry. Jerry does good things.
11: Okay, but he was unaware of this 1998 well, case.
0: We, we don't know if he was aware of it or not because there are two emails that said, I touch base with Joe and Coach wants to know what's happening here. But we do, Joe You don't Paterno, know
11: incident that...
0: That's the 98 case. Okay. But Joe Paterno, his memory 10, 12 years later was that he did not know about it. So... You know, he's an 84-year-old man who's suffering from, a, you know, terminal illness at the time. It may, be a, it may have been undiagnosed when he was interviewed, but, you know, because he died just two months after he was, two and a half months after he was fired.
11: So your takeaway from this is that Free didn't understand this type of offender didn't understand how people couldn't recognize this type of offender, didn't understand the grooming aspects and
0: victimization.
11: Okay. And so when he did his report, he looked at these people involved like Paterno and McCreary as people that were, were
0: uh, deliberately protecting football and reputation. And that's another thing he says in his, in his press conference, he says, we know that this is pervasive, this fear of bad publicity because, and, get and you t- don't argue with that, do you? That the
11: football people have a fear of bad publicity. Well, that that, not, that the program makes millions. I mean, you're not arguing
0: what what he. I'm thinking. not. I'm not. What I'm saying is, the evidence that he says it's pervasive is one conversation with Curley to the head of Second Mile. Now this is triple hearsay because it's the lawyer for the the for the the president or the CEO of Second Mile says that Curley says this. So we're now in triple hearsay here. But basically, we're, we're he, he says. Jerry has to stop showering the kids because it's bad for publicity. That's what he's saying. Now, on the, on the spur of the moment, when when he's trying to convince the Second Mile guy to, guy to do something about it, and the Second Mile guy did talk to Sandusky and he did talk to the head, the two of the board members, that at that moment he may have said that because he thought, you know, it's easier to say that than to say it's nasty. You know, business. Somebody fooling around with a kid in the shower, playing around, games, soap fighting, and wrestling, and that kind of stuff. You shouldn't do it. It's easier for them to say something like that. But the fact is that even any agency wants, doesn't want bad publicity. But they have to know what the bad thing is before they they d- determine what they're going to do about it. And in this case, all their behavior, all their behavior screams out that they weren't trying to hide this. What they were trying to do was address a, a behavioral problem that this psychologist seesaw or the supposed psychologist, CISOC, told them that Sandusky had. Okay.
11: All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank you again for stopping by, the mayhem. Um, I'd much appreciate it. And I I think that um, we're going to post um, – I don't know if this will be okay with you, but we will post – Jim's background on our website and um, you also can look online to see the report as well. Yeah, and I
0: think you can, you can post a link to my report we as
11: well. We will post a link to Jim's report on there as well. And thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next time you. at Media Mayhem.